0: what's going on everyone welcome to another episode of bro history it's Henry Zamoda and Danny Abdel-Jabbar. what's up brother how are you chilling man as per usual how about yourself I'm doing pretty well it was nice seeing you last night um, and like, likewise man it was a wonderful fireworks show um, the reason why we're talking about 4th of July is because uh, right now it's July 5th and this episode is uh, set to release on Sunday. I'm not sure exactly what date that is, and um, I guess if you're listening to this on Sunday, I'll be at a Cubs game, so um, <laughs> I'll be moving around a lot this this month. But uh, yeah, last week or, or excuse me, yesterday on Fourth of July, I had the pleasure of hanging out with Danny in person, and damn, that was a, a nice view uh, to see the fireworks show. Definitely, man, I, I'm I'm blessed to
1: have a uh, pretty unobstructed sightline to uh, Manhattan from Brooklyn, and you know that Macy's parade was. Uh, parade. Macy's fireworks display was pretty cool, um very easily visible. But I think even even better than the the Macy's fireworks was all of the amateur fireworks uh displays that were popping off all around us, including probably on the same exact roof that we were
0: standing, <laughs> just like right behind us. It was pretty cool. Was pretty cool, man. Where Danny lives, he has like a really good view of not only Manhattan but a lot of Brooklyn, most of Queens, even like the Bronx is up in the distance, so you can see constant fireworks just going off all night, even some would just like explode right in front of your face. Um, felt like a little bit like a like a like a happy war zone yeah like <laughs> a happy war zone, yeah um but yeah, let's get into the episode um so we're aiming to do more of an evergreen topic, um even though there's just a lot going on in the news but um to um start this out, um, or just to give you some background of what we're talking about, is um, on on June of 2014, so during a a defense subcommittee hearing, Senator Dan Coats, who's a senator out of Indiana, said that based on his knowledge, the Pentagon has a contingency plan on the shelf for just about every possible scenario, including an invasion by Canada. I mean, I, I found that to be pretty wild. Even though
1: it doesn't exactly surprise me, I still think it's pretty wild. But I
0: think the story is pretty cool, and I'm I'm pretty pumped to talk about it today. It, I don't think it really should surprise anywhere anybody. Um, I mean, that's what their job is, you know, in the Pentagon to think up of all these crazy scenarios. And however unlikely that un- unlikely a war between the U.S. and Canada um, would be. You know, you have to bet that there's there's probably some document in some safe in the Pentagon in some vault that details what we would do in the case, you know, for, for some reason or another, we went to war with Canada. Well, I mean, today, when you think about going to war with Canada, it just seems like the most
1: absurd topic. Like, why the hell would we ever want to go to war with Canada? You know, they're probably some of the nicest people, and they're our neighbors, and we have no beef with them whatsoever. But... I guess in the context of when these plans were drawn up and why
0: they were drawn up, it actually makes a ton of sense uh, as well, to why we
1: had these plans.
0: Well, all right, just put this in historical context. The U.S. has actually invaded Canada in the past, right? For example, you know, one of the first major battles in the Revolutionary War was in Canada, so um, the Battle of Quebec, which was a which, which was kind of a disaster for the Continental Army, um, but. Canada was also pulled into the War of 1812 because the British were using it as a staging ground. So the U.S. invaded it multiple times, and you know those invasions were weren't very successful either. Um, mm-hmm. You know they were repelled by the militias up there, and as well as the Indian population. So right. the uh, Tecumseh uh, and Tecumseh the and, and, and mm-hmm. the First Nations. But I mean, technically, Canada wasn't Canada at the time; it was
1: technically the British Empire. But I hear what you're saying.
2: Yeah. Um, we fought with
0: them before. <laughs> but there's also some really bizarre stories like the uh, the Pork and Beans War. Actual name, by the way. <laughs> the Pork and Beans War, um, yeah. where the state of Maine and Britain almost went to war over um, over timber rights. Right. Um, and then there was also a war in Western Canada not so long after that. This is the 1800s, um, where a war almost, or at least a skirmish almost broke off after a uh a pig that was shot right they were and, they were arguing over the value of the pig that got shot and
1: that basically escalated very quickly and uh it was um commodore um Commodore what was his name something hazard perry not not to be um confused with uh matthew Perry the one that went over to uh japan for the gunboat diplomacy but uh he was the he was the dude that was supposed to go through with this uh little skirmish it's
0: the pig wars story. pig war the pig war. only only one pig died for this entire war only one pig died um but i mean we're talking about like no casualties with any of these skirmishes one of the right. most bizarre ones and this is something i recently learned about was the finnian raids have you ever uh, heard yeah. of those yeah 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 The 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 one with the with the irish so um, a group of Irish Catholic loyalists, mostly Civil War vets, um, they founded a group called the Finnian Brotherhood, but they also called themselves the Irish Republican Army. The IRA? So they were the original <laughs> IRA. <laughs> yeah. And they were an anti-British group. And they created a scheme to occupy and seize Canada as a hostage to force the British to withdraw from Ireland in exchange. And honestly, that's also part of the plan
1: <laughs> for us to invade Canada too, but I, I won't get ahead of myself. But it seems like Canada is always being used as as like this um, bargaining chip against, uh, leverage against the,
0: the British Empire. Yeah, well, that's what, it, that's what it was. And they actually did invade, and there were clashes, but it didn't really work out. Of course um, you know, the Irish did not get its independence until the 20th century, but the... You know, the Finnean Brotherhood ultimately ends up getting arrested in America. I mean, there was a couple of border skirmishes. There were actual battles and casualties in this. Mm -hmm. Um, But these are just examples. And, you know, they're very strange historical footnotes that most people probably don't know too much about, including myself. You know, all of these different border disputes um, really do warrant their own podcast. But what we want to focus on today are the war plans that were created Um, in the 20th century. The reason why I got interested in this is I I actually just read a book um, called War Plan Red, the United States' Secret Plan to Invade Canada and Canada's Secret Plan to Invade the United States. And it's a pretty short book. It's about like 150 pages or so. So you can read it in one sitting. And it's just about pretty self-explanatory. It's about these different documents that were declassified and, um, about these plans to invade our neighbor up north, and vice versa, um, and that's where I'm probably getting most of uh, the deeper context from um, in this book. And after I read this book, the I read the actual document itself, uh, War Plan Red. It's actually in this in the footnotes, the entire document, and it's really weird. It's very yeah. bizarre this whole thing. Um it's it it very detailed too, actually. It, exactly. It's very detailed and it's just it's a strange document. And to give you just a, a high level overview, the scenario of these invasions are due to World War One debts. So even before the US entered World War One, the US was financing it. Or at the very least they were financing the British. And after the wars were over. The British owed the U.S. billions and billions of dollars. Time to pay up, Britain. (laughs) Time to pay up. So their debt to the U.S. was almost the size of their entire GDP. Mm. Um, Adjusted for inflation, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. And and I don't really know what that would be in pounds off the top of my head, but it was a lot of money. (laughs) Yeah. Therefore, they were dependent on Germany for war reparations and which Germany defaulted on in, in 1923, which sets off many of the events that ultimately lead the World War II, like mm-hmm. the hyperinflation and their occupation. But right. let's not get too off track. These loans, so these these World War I loans to from the United States to uh, the, the British, they weren't paid up until about five years ago. So it takes about 100 years to pay these loans off. Do you think that'll and, um, be around how long it'll take us to pay off our Chinese debt? <laughs>
2: the
0: US will probably default on that before they pay back any of these loans. But the British were apparently very upset. And one of the reasons that they were upset is because the US was insisting that they pay back in, you know, either gold or cash. So what happened is a US diplomat in London sent a warning back to the states saying that England is going to pursue a hostile uh, policy towards America. Specifically, they're going to try and turn countries that the U.S. has a uh, significant interest in against them. So um, they're going to go to countries like Mexico, Japan, South America. Uh, Well, South America is not a country, but, you know, countries within the United States orbit, um, they're going to try and turn them against America. And what this diplomat did not know was that Great Britain had actually already begun war planning against the U.S. So this war plan was called Defense Scheme Number One, which prepared for the scenario that the U.S. was ultimately going to invade Canada over these these war debts. And um, the creator of this plan was a, a Canadian military officer named. Lieutenant Colonel James Buster Brown. Buster, Buster Brown. Buster Brown. And he begins this espi- espionage mission along the, the Canada-New England border. So mainly in Vermont. And uh, we actually have some of these notes. We have some notes that are from his... Also, his, be- before uh, you do that, I just want to point out that this dude actually
1: like went undercover and crossed the border illegally and brought i think nothing with him except for like a kodak camera and like something to write with and he was just like basically touring the united states like writing down what he saw and taking pictures and stuff and a lot of the things that he wrote down and, and took pictures of were, would be totally useless in a battle but it's still super interesting to read uh, all the things that he was um paying attention to when he came over like his observations
0: are kind of cool you have to you have to watch out for those canadian spies i know right <laughs> What's that all about? You can tell, you know how you can tell if someone's Canadian or not? How they have beady black eyes and flapping jaws. Oh, uh, that's only in South Park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's how you can tell if someone's Canadian or not. Just look at the eyes. They're beady and black. Um if they're la laugh- if they're always giggling at fart sounds. <laughs> Terence. That, that would probably make me a Canadian. Oh. All right. Uh, so here's some of the notes. So the the people of Burlington, Vermont, seem very affable and not as American as other U.S. cities one has visited. In rural Vermont, he noted that if Americans are not actually lazy, they have a very deliberate way of working and apparently believe in frequent rest and gossip.
2: <laughs>
0: so I'm talking shit about Bernie Sanders is neck of the woods there. Yeah. Um the women throughout the rural districts appear to be heavy and not their commonly lot.
1: I don't heavy know. Commonly lot means comely, comely. It's like beautiful or you know, oh. attractive. Okay. So they're he, he was he was the, ripping on them. He was, they're they're fat and ugly. Apparently, okay. according to
0: him. I don't see how this is useful in in a war. Yeah, situation, I don't see how this but... is useful war information. <laughs> A large number of men of the state of Vermont are fat and lazy, but pleasant and congenial. Okay. That's funny. (laughs) He just wrote fat and lazy, but pleasant. But pleasant and congenial.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, I mean, I guess maybe the fat and lazy part might be useful information for a war, um, but like, it's just interesting observations here. Keep going. What else has he got?
0: Invading Canadians would be welcomed, if not as liberators, then at least bartenders. Since (laughs) Vermonters were eager for the drink, Prohibition denied them. (laughs) Well, that's probably true. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just win them over with a bunch of booze. (laughs) A large and influential number of American citizens who are not altogether pleased with democracy and have a sneaking regard for Great Britain, British law and constitution, and general civilization... On the whole, Vermont was a best an obstruction for any invading Canadian force. I mean, throwing shade at Vermont,
1: <laughs> but I mean, I guess that's what he observed when he came out there. I mean, he wasn't he wasn't totally inexperienced. I mean, he obviously he was an officer. He, you know, he fought in World War One, and you know, he was a respected person. But I just find it super interesting, like when uh, looking through all the, the different random observations that he had about. The United States is like, you'd think that he'd be paying attention to like, you know, mostly like critical choke points or like, where can we get the high ground (laughs) or shit like that. And then you read about all this stuff about, you know, just the personalities of the Vermonters of the time. Just seemed like an
0: interesting read. I I feel like he was just trying to vacation for a little while. (laughs) Yeah. Well, um, well, here's just to give some more background on Brown. So he was an experienced World War One officer. Right. Um basically he was going to use German shock troop strategies. Mm-hmm. So quick attacks on enemies' weak points with small groups of infantry, you know, like invade quickly with flying columns of, of militia across the border and then retreat, blowing up bridges and, and train tracks behind them. Mm-hmm. Um ultimately it was like an effort to buy uh time for Canada while Britain was able to eventually join the war with their with their navy and, you know, additional troops from the Empire. And um, you know, the plan was Uh, And I'm reading from this book. Um, With air support, Western troops would occupy Seattle, Spokane, but in Portland. Troops from the Prairie Command would take Fargo and Great Falls before moving on to Minneapolis and St. Paul. In the east, troops marching from Quebec would occupy Albany while the Maritime Army reclaimed Maine for the crown and in the midwest the great lakes command would take niagara and detroit so isn't that just it's a bold plan it sounds very unlikely yeah i mean well, it's a bold plan but what he was planning point. was was an offensive action you know an offensive action was necessary for you know for for defense and um, i guess the the reason why they thought it could work or he thought it could work Even though the U.S. had a way bigger population, is because America had very few troops close to the border, right? Because we uh, weren't worried about them. (laughs) Well, at least not at the time. Not well. I guess maybe not when he was uh, not when these reconnaissance missions or these plans are being drawn up. But the Mm -hmm. United States obviously was worried about them because they drew up a complete war plan that we're going to get into. But when you think about it, I mean, they do. I mean, this does sound totally nuts and it's really hard to contemplate, but um, Brown's scheme is not that crazy, Um, even with the lopsided troop figures. um, I don't know what the exact ratio is, but the United States has obviously a way bigger population and a way big. Bigger standing army, war but plan the U.S. goes into great detail about all of their
1: troops. I yeah. think it was like one hundred and thirty-eight thousand total, including reservists. It wasn't a lot.
0: <laughs> well, you have to. The times the U.S. just demobilized from World War One. That's true, an unpopular war, mm-hmm. and you know around this time you, you see some weird things in the nineteen twenties and nineteen thirties, um, where, for example, Finland. Was able to fend off the Soviet Union in a war, that's true. And Finland was pretty small at the time. Compared to the Soviet, to the Red Army, I mean, the Red Army wasn't really the Red Army yet; they were still kind of um, green and wet behind the ears. Um, but we were actually going to do a podcast on that, on the Angel of Death. I don't- we never did it yet. We'll do it. Eventually. We were talking about doing that. Yeah, the, the Finnish sniper. But um, so. The the U.S. was unaware of this scheme, at least at the time they were unaware of this scheme. But this report from the diplomat they had in London, he was like a military diplomat. Um, you know, the report about Britain being unhappy with their war debts convinced them to create their own plan. So, in May of 1930, the U.S. War Plans uh, Division drew up War Plan Red. That was described as a exercise in peacetime preparedness. And the war planners thought that Britain would start off with an attack on American merchant ships, but soon would be followed by a Canada-based invasion of the Great Lakes, the, the Northeast, DC, and also Pittsburgh. So all the you know major sp- industrial centers in the United States, um, including in Pittsburgh, I was In just gonna capital. say that, that, that oh.
1: that's pro- that's probably not very different from you know how the War of eighteen twelve played out actually. <laughs> yeah, I know it's not really it's, that it's the, different at it's all. It's the exact same you know scenario. Which I guess you know if it ain't broke, don't fix
0: it. Why would they come up with some other new plan? Well, that's what they that's what they expected. So this is what American war planners are saying what mm-hmm. what they expect Canada to try those damn right. Canadians to try. And um, that would be followed. So after the land invasion, there would be a um, invasion from the British Navy of of. Ba- they would go attack the Panama Canal, and then they would go invade the Philippines. And the Philippines was a colony that mm-hmm. the U.S. won during the Spanish American War. Now, right. um, I mean, obviously, this sounds this still sounds nuts. Like the manpower necessary for this would be. Tremendous, but um, I'll, I'll go on to this. Uh, I'm going to quote from this book real quick because um, the U.S. thought the British Navy was that good where there was a chance they'd be able to pull this off. Um, so within 40 days, they calculated the British could assemble in the port of Halifax, Nova Scotia, a fleet of 14 battleships, 38 cruisers, five aircraft carriers, 130 destroyers and 34 submarines. That's Along with his armada, ships. that's a lot of ships. Along with his armada, they figured um, 148,000 British troops would muster in Canada, supplemented with troops from India, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and even the Irish Free State, for a total of 2.5 million men. With a force this size, in addition to Britain's navy and aerial might, Britain could quickly and easily invade the United States. The only reasonable defense planners, con- uh, the only reasonable defense planners, concluded was a good offense, a rapid counter-invasion of Canada. Hence, War Plan Red. So, I guess in context, when you think about it, there the British was a powerful country. The British was a powerful country. It doesn't really sound like English. The British Empire was extremely powerful at this time. Um, right. To think I mean, that just the, just the uh, idea
1: of the of all those ships. I mean I'm I'm counting like, you know, almost two hundred total vessels and two and a half million man army if you count all of the, you know, uh colonies that they'd be
0: drawing forces from. Um yeah, that's that sounds like a credible threat. <laughs> and and <laughs> I guess honest. and I guess um there were there weren't really any naval battles in World War One. There was one major naval battle between the British and the Germans where it was kind of a stalemate where both sides declared victory, but there weren't too many ships sunk. So, um, I'm sure they had a lot. I mean, they were obviously building one of the reasons, and this is obviously a gross oversimplification, but you know, one of the, uh, preludes to world war one is a British versus German naval race where the British and the Navy and, and the Germans were, um, you know, just in a, basically a Navy, a, in a, in a ship race, like they're both right. building ships naval arms to race, compete, right. mm-hmm. yeah, naval arms race t- to compete with each other. Um, and the British so, were so, trying so, to outbuild the Germans cause the German ships were pretty good, pretty good, pretty cool. Pr- pretty cool. Um, and, and being the fact that Germany lost world war one, you know,
1: yeah, kind of gives you an indication of how well the British did on that front.
0: Well, I mean, no one really did well in World War One. It was a complete disaster for every country involved, well, um, you know, including the British better. Empire. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's—I I, mean—we're talking about what the American war planners were thinking. What what could be possible? Like what the British could do. You know, they're trying to uh, argue them up. You know, build the case. The strongest case as possible, you know, kind of like building the case that Iran has nuclear weapons or they're about to have nuclear weapons in six months after every six months. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, I think there's probably
1: two uh, arguments that go along this and in, in either one of them is, you know, this is these exercises, this war plan red, things like that are, are ways to keep the, you know, the officers and the United States um, busy and thinking and sharp. Um, because you know they're in a peacetime, so you know what? What do military officers? What, what good are they if they're not drawing up some plans to <laughs> to invade someone? Um, they're basically just you know wasting our money. Uh, so th- that could be one thing that this was just like a hypothetical situation that they wanted to draw up because you know military well, officers. Well, it's don't more do very it's more
0: than a hypoth- it, It's more than a hypothetical because we're going to get into it. But there's actual funding that goes into this. So, well yeah, but that, that doesn't come until after, right? So like they, they didn't they didn't start it with the funding in mind.
1: The funding came after the, the report came out. And the the, the second part though, that the the alternative to this is that um the United States could have a vested interest, you know, vis a vis manifest destiny um of invading Canada because, you know, we've we already have Alaska on what appears to be the Canadian mainland and you know, Canada's pretty rich in a lot of uh, mineral resources and you know we we've, we've have a history of you know, squabbling over the border between you know the US and Canada as we pointed out early on so it's entirely possible that the political powers that be or even the military powers that be kind of understood that dynamic and we're like well yeah justification is that Great Britain has a massive Navy and could amass a huge army and that could be very dangerous and scary for us but the you know the spoils of war are equally uh, you know attractive in this in this particular instance because Canada is very very rich with natural resources. One of the one of the big things that they go through at length in the War Plan Red, uh, talking about Canada is like how much uh, you know uh, industry they have, so how much um, ore they're mining, and how much aluminum and nickel and and iron that they have, and how much coal deposits that they were doing, and I was actually very surprising to me to see how how high up Canada ranked in in the world because they were doing um, comparisons on, uh, as an example, um, how many how much iron ore was being uh, mined and smelted, and I think they were like seventh in the world or something like that in that particular regard, uh, and, and there was just a bunch of different uh, economic uh, activity that can- Canada was engaging in at the time that would obviously be very attractive, um, you know, for the United States if we were to annex it. Um, and, you know, if you look at the the, the scheme, uh, scheme number one, what was it called again, uh, from from the British on the Can- Canadian side, defense scheme one, right? Um, defense scheme one, yes. Right. They were even planning on, you know, capturing uh, Maine and giving it back to the crown as it, as it was written there. So, you know, it was always kind of in the back of the you know, in the back of everyone's minds for these plans, whether it was the Canadian plan to invade the United States, or whether it was our plan, War Plan Red, to invade Canada, in the back of our minds, there was always this idea of, like, territorial expansion, right? And I think that's probably the more relevant uh, of the two of why something like this caught on, and why eventually, as you pointed out, Henry, um, you know, some money got backed behind it, because there's some Financial and uh, you know geopolitical interests, and and being able to you know annex more territory.
0: Well, let's talk about like what the what they said the goal is in this plan. So the expulsion. So the stated goal is according to this document. I got the documents. The expulsion of red, Great Britain. So they're speaking in you know color codes. Um, right. red, red is, is Great, Great Britain. Britain. Crimson uh, is Canada. Blue is
1: the United States. Black yes. is Japan, although that doesn't come up. Excuse me. Black is
0: Germany and orange is Japan. I think green is Mexico. Um, but, you know, they're labeling countries by colors. From North and South America and the definite elimination of red as a strong competitor in foreign trade, you know, destroy British influence. That's um, true. And it's. And it ends up being very similar to the Canadian plan, Scheme 1, or at least kind of a mirrored version of it. So they would be invading along very similar paths. And the first step was a naval takeover of Halifax to deny the port as a staging area for the British. Um, moving north from Albany and Vermont, an armored column would take Montreal and Quebec. Quebec. From Detroit, another column would take Toronto, and from Buffalo, Niagara Falls, crippling the Canadian power grid, and then Grand Forks, North Dakota, would would be the launch point for an invasion of Winnipeg, and finally from Bellingham, Washington, American troops would overpower Vancouver. Um, what's also interesting about this is that uh, Charles Lindbergh also helped helped uh, write some of this plan up, and. Uh, Charles Lindbergh is the famous aviator. He was the the first person to fly from or fly nonstop from New York to Paris. Mm-hmm. so he was flying reconnaissance missions in Canada. Um, and here's there's just like all sorts of weird shit written in here. So for example, um according to these war planners, the red race is more or less phlegmatic. phlegmatic have you ever heard that word before phlegmatic i mean not not exactly but you know i I looked it up also so (laughs) phlegmatic so i had to look this up and it's a word that means um having an unemotional and stolidly calm disposition unemotional stoic in either way and then the sentence uses the phlegmatic British character, right, but noted for its ability to fight to a finish. Also the British could be reinforced by colored troops from their colonies. so not we're not talking about colored uh, as in countries, we're talking about um, you know Br- brown people, brown people. So mm-hmm. some of the colored races, however, come of good come of good fighting stock. And under white leadership, can be made into very efficient troops. Okay, so, kind of you know, racist
1: pro- product of the time, I suppose, but still
0: racist. Some good old, some good old-fashioned uh, 1920s racism or 1930s racism. Mm-hmm. Here is something bizarre. So, War Plan Red it also addressed the Catholic question. So, if the United States ever conquered Canada. I'm reading from this document. The dual language would be done away with at once, and the Roman Catholic Church would have much less power and influence by 100-fold. We were talking about this last night, weren't we? Yeah, weren't we? Yeah, I think the, the line of our, But not related was... to this. We were just talking about how it was, it's weird to think that there used to be a strong anti-Catholic uh, sentiment in this country. Right, And and you and
1: I both— Uh, were were raised Catholic at an early period, so you know coming from our disposition, it it wasn't at least for me, it wasn't abundantly clear that um, Catholicism wasn't uh, wasn't a major um, religion in the United States or or at least not the majority religion. That that understanding didn't come until much later for me, Uh, and I had no idea that there was such strong anti Catholic. you know, rhetoric and, and sentiment in the United States for a very long time. And, and, you know, obviously I think the first major example was like JFK and being you know, him being the president and also being Catholic was like a, a big stink. And I remember learning about that for the first time going like,
0: All right, why was that a problem?
1: <laughs> well very this, interesting.
0: What, what this addresses is the Catholic is, um, that's like a plus, you know, it's right. written in the context. It's like, yeah, this will actually it will mitigate the influence of the Catholic church worldwide. Right. Mm-hmm. Which is, which is, it's interesting to see in this document, right? I mean, it makes in hindsight being 2020, it makes sense, right? Like
1: the, the, the Pope holding sway across, you know, all of his you know, peoples. And, uh, I wonder, I wonder how much, uh, Joe Biden is swayed by the Roman Catholic church on his policy and decision making, but <laughs>
0: not <None>, digress. <laughs> n- absolutely none. There's, Very limited influence. It's it's not like it used to be. Um, So Crimson cannot successfully defend her territory against the United States. She will probably concentrate on the defense of Halifax and the Montreal-Quebec line in order to hold bases of operation for Red. Important secretary efforts will be made to defend her industrial area and critical points on her transcontinental railroad lines. The policy will be to prepare the provinces and territories of Crimson and Red to become states and territories of the Blue Union upon the Declaration of Peace. And mean it is. <laughs> meaning, I guess that goes back to what you were saying, like, hey, so yep. maybe there was some territorial ambitions and this wasn't entirely self-defense this Mm -hmm. was like hey this could be a good time to grab some more possible states or territory um at this point man my history is bad right now alaska was not a state yet um Mm -mm. i had to think think about that for a second no alaska Mm -hmm. was not a state in the 1930s until like the 50s right um but yeah it makes it makes sense um but it seemed like this was actually an attempt to i mean it'd be more likely that these the canadian territory would be a state than alaska i mean it'd be closer to the mainland you know what for I mean? sure yeah it, um, there's there's like areas
1: that are just like touching like detroit
0: you know or like
1: the 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 bits across the water you know in niagara or you know the bits you know bordering vermont and new york and upstate new york you know like
0: all of that could very easily be just the United States also. And I just want to, you know, give the disclaimer, you know, I'm, I'm not pulling from too many different sources right now. I'm reading, you know, the main document as well as the, uh, you know, book that gives some more color to the document. Um, so there very well could be an explanation for this, but just my conspiratorial mind automatically goes into, oh, like they wanted the annex territory. You know what I mean? Of course, um, of course. I think that but, part was obvious, in my opinion. Uh, I, I mean, they wrote about it in the plans. <laughs> I know. You know. When you write about it in the plans, it's uh, it kind of makes it makes hard it to ignore obvious. that part. <laughs> you know.
1: But yeah, I mean, annexing Canada, like I, you were pointing this out before, it was what's interesting is that after this plan was drawn up, you know, the Congress approved fifty-seven million. Um, for its effort, in, and that was in February of 1935 for basically an updated version of the plan. And, and the <laughs> the updated version of the plan was crazier, admittedly. Um, and the, the money that they were going to uh, appropriate to this fund was basically going to be used to, to build three uh, of these military airfields. Uh, <laughs> the story for this is hilarious. They wanted to build these... Uh, we, we didn't have too many airstrips or airfields, kind of along the Canadian border. Uh, obviously, you know the Canadians noticed that we don't have very many troops in the area. So, uh, in order to kind of give us a spring off point, we were going to use at least part of this fifty-seven million to build more airstrips, airfields, three of them specifically. Uh, and I think the majority of them were going to be along that kind of great um, prairie plains area uh, in in the in the upper Midwest. And We initially wanted to disguise them as civilian airports uh, so that we could pretend like, oh, no, that these aren't, you know, military assets. They're just civilian airports. And then we would use them as spring off points to, like, bomb the shit out of, uh, you know, Halifax or whatever. Um, But um, that actually strikes against the Canadian Air Force. Right. Exactly. But but the plans for this actually (laughs) leaked. uh, So our cover got blown. Uh, that those airfields were uh, actually military installations. So, <laughs> uh, I think a lot of the story of this, of this in general, uh, were plan red, and and a lot of this is just like a story of um, really bad uh, secret keeping <laughs> in
2: the
0: in the United States, because all of this stuff got leaked eventually. Um, well, this was, cool. de- this was decla This was declassified in 1974, and that's when people started writing about it. And mm-hmm. something that also was included in this financing was th- some of that money went towards a, like a, the largest war game the United States ever had at that point. Right. And they did this war game right along the, the U.S.-Canadian border up in Fort Drum, New York, which is basically, mm-hmm. you know... It's, it's Canada. It's, it's basically <laughs> yeah. Canada. So it's, it's yeah. within walking distance. It's close. It's... it's um maybe like 10, 20 miles off the Canadian border. So, uh... But that's the thing, though. They were doing this giant war game at the
1: same time that this information leaked, so it was actually pretty crazy. Um, And I I think it it might make sense to just talk about some of the specifics of the plan because we we touched on a few of the things, but um, I I think it, it kind of goes over... Uh, a lot of people's heads how incredibly detailed the plan was and, like, what areas they would choose to hit and why they would want to hit them. And uh, I'm just kind of, like, loosely pulling from the original uh, plan here. Um, and so one of the uh, parts that I found pretty interesting was uh, talking about how Canada wouldn't have the manpower uh, to actually defend themselves. Uh, I think I mentioned earlier in the show that there was something like 138,000 um canadian troops that were available and that was including the reservists so they saw that as like a like n- not necessarily an easy target but like you know one hundred thirty eight thousand troops is in a ton so they understood that anything that canada would do would be to protect critical infrastructure and just wait you know like hold out until um the british empire can come in like basically save their asses uh and so they named a couple i think it was like six uh specific uh spots. Where they thought were of critical strategic importance, and I'm going to read off a few of those areas as well as like the reasons why they were uh, important. So I just took the liberty of finding all the important parts uh, and just condensing them into just a few uh, a couple of sentences for you guys here. So, um, so they have the first area, which is the most important area, and that was the Halifax, Moncton, St. John area, um, and uh, the reason why this was the most important um, uh, of the areas is Halifax. It, you know, it was the, the, the port there is is the most important part, um, and that's you know way off on the on the east coast. And what's important about it is that uh, it would be a easy point for the British to come and uh, obviously land and, and replenish the Canadian forces and and use that as their spring off point to you know uh, conduct further operations in the United States um moncton uh which is something that i didn't know about until very recently uh it's it's got a peninsula that's connecting nova scotia
0: um and the mainland uh, i think just to go back to that i don't want to sorry i i i think that is one of the first places in nova scotia i think that's where the first um british ships landed in north america I pretty, I'm, I think that is. I have to double check on that again, but I know that's, that just popped in the mind. And the reason why I bring that up is, is, uh, is because it just kind of shows how close that is because that protrudes. It's east. more. It's east a pretty close. Yeah,
1: it's 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 pretty close by way of you know um, uh, of of seafaring. Uh, it's a it's a close uh, spot, and they would definitely want to go there. And 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 Nova Scotia is super important for uh, a lot of both import and export uh, in Canada. Um, but, but there's this one particular area in, at Moncton where there's a peninsula, uh, as I was saying, that connects Nova Scotia and the mainlands, um, to, and it's only like 14 miles wide. Uh, so it's a super narrow channel. And, and the reason why this is kind of important is because uh, it would give the British uh, a, uh, a highly defensible position on the east, on the east coast, because if it's only 14 miles narrow, you know, you have if we were to engage in a naval battle against them, that's that's a very that's a very narrow area um, you know to to send ships through so it's really really easily defensible. Think about like the hot gates of thermopylae for a moment, right? And why they chose that particular spot to hold off the Persians, right? Um, it would be easily defensible uh, in that respect. So, taking over that this particular Halifax, um, Moncton, St. John area was super uh, important and and they, they posited, they, they, um, you know, the United States, the, these war planners were saying that uh, if they get control of this area, they would deny the British uh, the only ice-free port on the East Coast uh, suitable for an overseas base. Uh, and that's super important because Canada is fucking cold and they have other ports farther north, but, you know, a lot of them are usually covered in ice for like four, four to five months out of the year, um, making them totally useless. Uh, and uh, also, uh, it, it would stop them from preparing a naval base on the East Coast that they can use to, you know, come down uh, our way and <laughs> make some trouble with us. Uh, but also, this is an interesting one. There's apparently a transoceanic submarine cable service. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but they, they literally run cable to this day, actually, um, between our side of the world and their side of the world, the Eastern and Western hemispheres. And it's a transoceanic cable, meaning it's a it's literally a cable <laughs> from here to there with the, that they were using for uh, communications and, and things like that. And now we actually use them for like fiber optic and internet and shit like that. Um, but that cable is obviously super important for communications. And if they were able to capture that particular area, they can stop communications between Canada and Britain, um, which would have been super useful. Uh, and also, uh, there are a couple of air bases in the area uh, of Halifax that they can um, prevent the the british from using um and one one bit and i'm going to read this directly so if halifax is to be captured without the use of force uh without the use of large forces and expenditure of considerable time and effort it must be accomplished promptly before the red reinforcements can be landed or crimson uh organized for its defense so they understood that we have to hit this target fast and quickly and also the 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 window to to do so was super narrow because the moment that the Canadians would um, get a whiff of like blood in the water, they were going to defend the shit out of this particular area. Um, so yeah, the Halifax area, Moncton, St. John, that was all uh, of utmost importance. Um, but there was also many more. So there, there's the Montreal, Quebec area, uh, also sometimes known as the St. Lawrence area. Uh, and a couple reasons for this and in terms of importance, there's also some ports there, right? The ports of Montreal and Quebec. Um, those were like more icy ports, like I was t- telling you about, like four to five months of the year, they're going to be stuck in in ice, which makes them useless, uh, especially for a military operation. Um, but there's still, uh, you know, many months out of the year uh, where they can totally use this as a, as a forward operating base, um, you know, for the British. And... Um, But also, there's a lot of commercial importance here. Uh, It controls uh, all of the communication lines uh, by land, sea, and wire between the industrial uh, and agricultural centers of Canada, so out farther west, and the eastern seaboard, right? So this is like kind of the hub where, you know, the breadbasket talks to the, you know, um, uh, the eastern uh, part of the the country that does all the, you know, import-exports, especially Europe. Um, So montreal has a much bigger uh harbor and terminal facilities but quebec because of its like location is was considered more uh, important uh and some of the things that they posited would be to basically m- stop the british from using the saint lawrence river uh and the ports there um and cut all of canada west of quebec um you know, off, cut them off from the eastern seaboard altogether. There were also a couple of uh, you know, air bases there as well. Uh, but super, super important for this particular, um, uh, particular region was the, the coal and the iron that came from Nova Scotia and Newfoundland uh, and cutting off all of the imports that they get from the uh, Atlantic. So they, they saw this as like a choke point um, from a logistic
0: purpose. Um, so I thought that was pretty interesting. I just I just want to like stop and reflect it's crazy the detail you know, as you mentioned um mm-hmm. it's crazy they really how thought about it yeah they they really thought this through it wasn't just as we're going through more of this right now um and just you know revisiting it, it is c- quite amazing how uh much these war planners thought about like the geography and natural resources and <laughs> yeah, and just the different. Choke points and geopolitical um, notions, but I guess that's what their job is to do, right? You know, they wouldn't be uh, war. And planners. they had nothing better to they had nothing better to do too because it was peacetime, right? So it's not yeah. like they were. I mean, just think about the Rand battle. Just think about the Rand Corporation and you know all the war scenarios they're writing up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So I guess about if there's more. not
0: there's not some huge military industrial complex at this time though. Um, that is like being contracted to do this. So it's coming from the war planners and the government themselves, rather than like a RAND corporation or something like that,
2: or think tank. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. Or well, think, I mean, think. can you really the say right one is worse up.
1: than the other if they're coming up with the same exact ideas, you know? <laughs> so, um, the RAND
0: organization is a think tank. That's what I should have said. Um, mm-hmm. But, all right, I digress. Let's go back to this thing. Yep. Uh, so, third most important area uh,
1: was the Great Lakes area. And um, I'll compress this quite a bit because there's a lot of, like, names of places, and I don't want to totally alienate our non-U.S., non-Canadian listeners, on this particular part, but what's super important about this particular Great Lakes area is the Great Lakes. Uh, look at a map. There's a bunch of, you know, giant water uh, waterways and lakes and things like that, uh, and those are of strategic and geopolitical and, of course, economic um, importance. There's a ton of ports, uh, and um, a, a, one, a, a one that I learned about was the Sudbury Nickel Copper Mines, which were going to be super important for, you know, just the 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 general uh you know economic crippling of of canada so i think what they were planning for for this particular great lakes takeover was to stop the transportation of iron ore coal and grain and a bunch of other stuff like that um and also to basically uh cover the spread on this particular bridgehead that's covering a uh, like a, a very narrow uh waterway near the detroit area uh, by the way, War of 1812, we got spanked in that particular area. I forget the name of the general, but uh, he basically gave up uh, a fort in Detroit like immediately without, without a battle uh, in that particular area. So <laughs> uh, I, I, I think they might have had that particular embarrassment in mind when thinking about um, taking over the Great Lakes area and fortifying the Detroit area. And also, at the time, Detroit and the surrounding areas were huge for manufacturing, right? So we have... You know, it was highly industrialized, so it was super important for us to strengthen and fortify that particular area. Um, But right across the water, it was pretty much the same, you know, uh, on both sides of the waters. So controlling that area meant controlling a lot of the industry and a lot of the manufacturing, uh, of which I was very surprised to find Canada was doing a very good job at the the time. Super high on, on the list of countries that were doing manufacturing, actually. Uh, This next part is going to be short. So, Winnipeg. So, the Winnipeg area was another one of those ones that they were eyeing. And there was only one really big reason why they would consider Winnipeg a uh, crucial um, area to go after. And it's literally the railroad railroad system. system. Yeah. Exactly. Right. That's literally it. Right. So, they they control the railroad system. So, if if you get Winnipeg,
0: you basically, you know. You, you get Canada by the balls. I guess more importantly, uh, it's the center people. of the, it's the center of the railroad system.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so you can't really transport like people or like grain or coal or, you know, uh, provisions, any kind of oil, things like that to the East to help them out. If you just grab it,
0: if you just grab them at Winnipeg. And then there's, uh, I guess finally there's the Vancouver area and yep. British Columbia. And, and
1: this one, I was actually really surprised to find out that this one was like, kind of like secondary in terms of all of the importance. They were like, "Yeah, we'll we'll just go after this for, for fun. It's it's not
0: super important, but we'll do it anyway." Um, and, and well, I don't know what the population of. I'm sorry, I don't know what the, the population Mexico. of British Columbia or Vancouver was at the time, but I'm sure it wasn't. There wasn't a very big population.
1: No, it wasn't, and and you know, obviously, it had. The reason why they were going after this is because they had a, a naval base at Esquimalt, um, and also uh, it was like an outlet for you know provinces in the west of Canada. Um, but they, the you know they, the the folks that drew up this plan wanted to just deny any any bases or you know any any naval ports things like that uh, in the west coast. So just deny more bases uh, for for the British. But also there was a small problem around uh, a particular area uh, and on the west coast for us, and it was in the Puget Sound area um, yeah, near Washington. And uh, also there's some cable uh, communication, so uh, in trans- um same same cable system that we had be- between Nova Scotia and, and Britain. They have one uh, on the west coast uh, with the Far East, so so that they can't communicate with you know, the colonies that they had out there, like presumably, I don't know, Hong Kong or some shit like that. Um, but like this, apparently Vancouver wasn't like a very high priority for them, uh, which I found pretty interesting. But I guess the makeup was much different than, than it is now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I read the entire, uh, the entire document, and honestly, a lot of it was super repetitive, but the level of detail that they were getting into, like number of men that they have, number of ships that they have, like how much grain are they exporting like they really really did their homework on this part and it's kind of scary to be honest you know i mean i suppose that's what it takes in order to you know uh draw up a war plan <laughs> against a you know uh an industrialized nation but um
0: i mean what do you think well i something i need to learn more about is um just how serious the United States was about, or like, what was the general consensus that this was a possibility of happening? Because um, I still think it was probably pretty low at this time uh, between most um, most people in elite American society. I don't think anyone really expected something like this to happen. But it's just interesting to see this all on paper, um, kind of showing there what it was on the minds. Uh, it was on the minds of at least a few people in the government. Um, Because it wasn't really too much longer when FDR started making, you know, started saying things like, we're going to respect Britain's, uh, the British Empire's territory. Um, You know, this is an important friendship that we have, yada, yada, yada. We're great friends with the British and and all that stuff that came along during World War II. So, um, it's hard to contemplate, but you know that's something that it's that kind of bears. If you're interested in this topic, I, that would be something I would want to start with um, to get a further historical analysis. Like how how serious were these plans? You know, they seem pretty serious reading them. You know what I mean? But is it just yeah. the product of a military staff that is looking for shit to do? Um. No, there's funding in it. There's 47 million dollars. I don't, I can't do the math of what the inflation is at this time, but it's 47 <laughs> million. It's a lot of money. You know, the U.S. is not the, the the juggernaut, and it is the rising juggernaut, but it's not the juggernaut of the world at this well, time. He,
1: here's here's a here's something interesting, and and of course, uh, coming off of episode 200, I'm super, you know still in this in this like UFO mode but like the US also has believe it or not plans for like what to do in the event of like alien contact you know so like at least part of this is just you know just like doing you know the military doing its due diligence to assess threats you know and and work with whatever we got but I think there, well, there's what if aliens
0: a... <laughs> took control over Canada and then launched an invasion? <laughs> What if, what if canadians are aliens that's also likely how would we know i think they are they're obviously not human <laughs> they play hockey too well it can't be real i'm not sure what <laughs> they are they're not human beings those canadians you dehumanizer well that's all i have to really say about everything i don't know is there anything else you want to add
1: No, I mean, unless you want to talk more about the alien invasion plans to
0: (laughs) that the United States have, but uh, I'll I'll leave that maybe for another episode. (laughs) Yeah, maybe we'll leave that. We'll keep this a shorter episode. We're just over an hour on this one. Um, Thanks, guys, for listening to another episode of Bro History. We really do appreciate your time um, and and you continuing to listen. Um, If you enjoy the podcast. Or if you want to support us, rate and review the show. That is the number one way to support Bro History is to rate and review the podcast. Um, so do that on iTunes if you're listening on the Apple Podcast app. And if you want to further support our show, you can join us on Patreon. Um, Patreon is a great way to get extra content along with access to our Slack um Our slack account is just a really fun place where everyone communicates um We actually hung out with one of our patreon supporters yesterday f- on Fourth of july um that's right yeah, we did shout, I guess shout out to Owen um yep and we will uh we will see you i guess next i'm actually not i'm not really sure if we're gonna be able to do an episode next week we're gonna try um but we'll find we out. will we'll we'll find out, but hopefully we can we can get some time together to do another episode um so we're not doing it so we can get back on our normal schedule uh but we'll keep you posted um you'll see that that uh updated episode if we can get it and uh yeah anything else to add? No man see you later all right peace guys.